Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And each week, one of us tells the other a story from Sydney's history. Last week, I was the one with the prepared episode, Jed. Do you happen to remember what it was about? I was actually trying to recall the topic of your episode today, and it just totally mind blanked on me. But then about 15 minutes later, it came to me. It was about, it came to me because I remembered your clue, which was what happened in Bronte in uh, around the turn of the century and the Mornington Peninsula in the late 70s, I think. Yeah, something like that. And it was the the development of the Australian crawl. Yeah, it was a good clue, wasn't it? Great clue. (laughs) (laughs) Got a lot to live up to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you did. Yeah. Uh, But this week, Jed, I'm the one to kick back and uh, put my feet up and listen to a story from you. And I believe it's got something to do with New South Wales being the gay state. It does, because it is. The clue from last fortnight, for those that have forgotten, is uh, a punter at the Darwin Casino, upon hearing from what state I hailed, informed me that New South Wales was the gay state. So I figure that it's about time we do an episode that celebrates that fact and celebrates that fact like only the gays can. Alistair, last week you thought it might be something to do with Mardi Gras. I don't suppose you've uh, moved beyond that? Uh, No, I haven't. I I thought that was a fairly good guess. I guess that's kind of the premiere event on Sydney's calendar for the gay and lesbian Oh, I should say the LGBTQI community. Yeah, so I thought it might be about that. Though, the more that I think about it, it wouldn't be stories from Sydney unless we did some really left field topic that people haven't otherwise heard about. So maybe it was too mainstream. That Also, I remember you uh, putting up, recommending an episode um, on a different podcast about the history of Mardi Gras. So I thought maybe you're doing something different. Um, I don't really know, but I have more questions about this punter at the uh, Darwin Casino. <laughs> All right, well, we're, we, we won't be coming back to him, so now's your chance. Uh, so, was, was there anything at all in the conversation or setting that was related to the gay community, or was it just that... that- well, it was me and my brother, uh, after, and my dad, funnily enough, after quite a large number of beers, gambling together. And um, if you've ever done anything with me and my brother, you know that uh, things can get fairly rambunctious. Um, So I suppose that general flamboyance that we uh, brought into that venue was probably what what led to him (laughs) saying that. Right. But otherwise, just that that was, that's what he wanted to tell you he knew of the fine state of New South Wales. Look, it was a long time ago. And as I mentioned, I was quite a few beers deep into a holiday that was, look, (laughs) it was probably warranted. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll leave it at that then. Um, All right, so yeah, I guess it's time for you to reveal to me what what it is going to be about this week. Well, you were uh, your line of thinking was excellent. You're exactly right. It's not about Mardi Gras. I feel like there's a lot of content around about the history of Mardi Gras. In fact, it's uh, the the 1978 first Mardi Gras is a bit of a cult moment um, in Sydney's queer history, which doesn't mean it's not worth learning about. But it's not something that I feel particularly inspired to delve into and learn more about and discover, which is sort of the premise upon which this podcast is built. So without further ado, I'll get stuck into my episode. But before, but before I do that, I would also like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which uh, this week's story takes place, which is the people of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. So, as in all places, the history of homosexuality in Sydney is a long one. Now, I can't say that I've looked 
into or found any sources on Eora or Darug sexuality. But since heteronormativity in Australia is a colonial construct, it's safe to say that queerness was a part of life pre-settlement in one way or another. Our story really begins with the first colonial governor, Arthur Phillip, who must have known that there was something in the air at Port Jackson, for in preparing for his stint as governor of the new colony in 1787, he pronounced that, and I quote here, Alistair, Good. There are two crimes that would merit death, murder and sodomy. Oh, wow. For either of these crimes, I would wish to confine the criminal till an opportunity offered of delivering him as a prisoner to the natives of New Zealand and let them eat him. Oh. Which sounds more like a reward than a punishment <laughs> to me. Um, that, yeah, fascinating. Because the first person to actually be killed was like only a couple of weeks in and they hung someone for stealing a loaf of bread again. I think. Yeah, I don't think I don't think when he was preparing the trip in 1787, he quite realised how desperate the situation would be almost immediately. All of his ideals about hanging homosexuals out the window was just people with bread. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't say hanging them. Throwing them to cannibals was his plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if the the indigenous people of New Zealand had any history of um of cannibalism. No, I think possibly within specific contexts of warfare and things like that. Uh, but yeah, as you can imagine, the colonial British Empire really got into it. Like it was it was mm. pretty big in the imaginations of a lot of people at that time. So that's not what our story will be about, yeah. though, today. Okay. Because I like as that you it's a deep dive, the though, all the way back <laughs> yeah. to, to Philip. All right. The very first reference uh, pertaining to the colony and gayness, I found it. But our story is about celebration, uh, which that is nothing to do with. So we will jump all the way ahead uh, into the early part of the 20th century. Sydney obviously had a gay life all through the 19th century, but it was in that early 20th century that the very first trappings of a sort of queer party culture began to emerge. And I'm going to give a bit of a background onto what was going on socially in the 1920s. Having succeeded in implementing early closing, which you will recall from our episode on the six o'clock swill, we had this diverse coalition of groups, women's unions, religious groups, working unions, and assorted wowsers who, having had success with the six o'clock swill, now had a taste for power and a desire to straighten out society more broadly. Even more. Yeah. Many of them wanted nothing less than full prohibition. Right. And they came after other social evils, such as dancing as well. Oh, okay. One Methodist reverend put it, the dance hall is the nursery of the divorce court, the training ship of prostitution and a modern ulcer that is threatening morality. Yeah, you gotta love it. I mean, <laughs> I just like I like the way of wo- with words back then. Yeah, it's it's, it's very it's pretty special. Um, so this new morality coalition uh, also pushed for greater censorship, uh, and the number of books banned from import grew from 120 in 1927 to 240 by 1929 to 5,000 by 1936. Oh, wow, that's a lot. The 30s were a great time for banning books, eh? Yeah, and there's probably a couple you might have read. Uh, two that jumped out at me was Brave New World by Huxley and Down and Out in Paris and London by Orwell. Okay, I wonder why... Scandalous. Yeah. <laughs> that would be interesting to know more about. I, we should do an episode about the history. It's probably more of a federal policy about the, why books are so expensive in Australia. <laughs> Um, right, so a lot of censorship in the 30s. 
Uh, they're real. They're going after dance halls. They're they're just trying to pull down all that is good <laughs> the in society. Fun will end. <laughs> I wonder what they want people to. I guess just go to church a lot, right? And then work in church. That's it. Mm-hmm. But reading, like going after reading, comes off. It's, it's kind of funny, you know. These days, they'd love people to just be reading now. Yeah, yeah, reading's reading's considered a wholesome activity. But at the time it was obviously uh filling people with corrupt ideas, right? Brave New World is is I mean, apart from its commentary on um whatever it's about. <laughs> there's also the, all the drugs, right? Everyone's eating drugs constantly. Yeah, but it's a yeah. Look, they might have missed the the overarching point. I don't think it's a glorification of drugs at all. <laughs> and down and out in Paris and London He's refusing to be part of the middle class. Yeah. It's vile. That, that's more, probably more of a threat to the social order. Uh, Norman Lindsay had uh, this to say after his novel Red Heap became the first Australian novel to be banned, which I think is quite oh, a nice. claim to fame, yeah. in 1930. Uh, and anyone who reads the news in the 21st century might be able to relate to this somewhat. He said, Australia's intelligent minority is invertebrate. It lets the lowest type of official moron wipe his boots on it. Policemen as arbiters of our culture. Lord, what a country. Wow, nice. (laughs) I'm I'm glad that he's getting a shout out now, many years later, for his rightful claim to fame. (laughs) Yep. Um, So, And there's a couple of other efforts at controlling social morality at the time we had, uh, which was the Catholic Archbishop of Sydney, begging authorities not to allow mixed bathing at the beach. Uh-huh. And we had bishops rallying against women exposing their arms in public. And mm-hmm. the Anglicans, not to be outdone, condemned the motor car as encouraging immorality. Yeah. Interesting. It's funny to think of, I don't know, the 1930s seemed pretty close to us. And then when you think of like the motor vehicle being a tool of immorality, it's, it feels a long way away. Well, it was on the grounds that young people were spending their time saving for a car instead of having children. Oh, interesting. Okay. So (laughs) it's like it was the avocado toast of the day. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) So that was obviously, that's one side of the 20s. But the other side is the flappers, the high-timing drug and alcohol-fueled parties. Mm -hmm. I was wondering when you get to them. (laughs) (laughs) Right now. And so with the absence of formalized venues such as bars and pubs to spend evenings in, in Sydney, parties were where nightlife happened. Right. This is more house parties. I imagine there's no abandoned warehouses at this time. They're actually being used. (laughs) They were being used, yeah. Interesting you ask. In the 1920s is the time that East Sydney and Darlinghurst area became a bit of a gayborhood. Not sure they had that portmanteau at the time. <laughs> yeah, that was when they first developed their homosexual character. Okay. And interestingly, the reason that came to be was because these areas were cheap and centrally located, obviously, but also because there was a lot of really large old manors and terrace houses that were divided up into boarding houses. Mm-hmm. And also uh, in the 20s and 30s is when a lot of those sort of famous blocks of Art Deco flats that are so well known in Sydney were being built. Yes. So in a culture that was really centered around the single family home, this was an area where you could live in a variety of different accommodation arrangements. Right. And so it attracted, you know, all sorts of different kinds of people. But one group that were looking for that sort of freedom from the the strictures of the family unit was definitely gay men. Yeah. So, yes, we have a lot of house parties 
And as you'd expect, they're more often they're not hosted by someone who's well off and owns a larger house in the area rather than someone who's staying in a small flat or a room in a boarding house. Right. But because you had a lot of those people in those boarding houses and small flats and all that kind of, you had a a large population of people who were looking for things to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so, as obviously, the the issue here is that if you don't have an invite, you can't really go, right? Right. Because all all the pubs and everything, they're, they're closed. Yeah, so it was called the camp. Camp was the was the gay of the the period. So the camp world was still pretty hidden, mm-hmm. um, and it was a difficult thing to navigate your way into if right. you didn't kind of have a connection. So even if you lived in the right area, it might take a bit of poking and prodding to find out where the where the good parties were going down. Right, which would be difficult, I imagine, if you just kind of moved to Sydney or like and being kicked out of your home or however you ended up in that area to then have to work quite hard to even connect with the community that you're there to connect with. Mm. But as well as these private parties, we did have some formalized uh, and publicized dance parties at the time, most famous of which was known as the Artists' Ball. Mm. Uh, A handy euphemism for those in the know. (laughs) Uh, The first of these balls was held in Sydney Town Hall. Oh, wow. So they've just gone straight to the center there. (laughs) Straight to it, yeah. And as you may recall, Alistair, I went to a party called the Queen's Ball in Sydney's Town Hall uh, in 2018 and 2019. So it's nice to see that the tradition continues on. Yeah, they, I don't actually recall that. I don't keep quite the close tabs on your social life that you think <laughs> I might. But uh, You do. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad that it's a long-standing tradition, the, uh, the gays having a party in the Town Hall. And we've got a quote here from the Sydney Morning Herald describing the 1922 Artists' Ball as, and I quote, indisputably the most spectacular dance that has taken place in the city. The decorations were in no sense puritanical. (laughs) Jazz was the keynote in colouring and general tone. Very nice. And so you seem to be saying that this was definitely fairly strongly associated with the gay community or the camp community at the time. Uh, how do we know that kind of thing? I guess like the, those quotes seem to like su- maybe suggest that indirectly, but is there is that what we're going off or how do we know about this? We know about it because of uh, oral history, basically. Okay. We're not talking that far ago. Obviously, um, a contemporary oral history would be difficult to find, but it wasn't so long ago that people were interviewing people who went to these parties yeah. um, in person. The Herald has an interesting approach and it sort of changes throughout the 20th century. But at this point in time, whether they knew what was going on or not isn't entirely clear. Yeah. Um, but very shortly becomes apparent that people do know. Okay. In uh, 1924, so this is still probably these parties are occurring, but it's not known in the public sphere that it's like no one's outwardly identifying it as a gay party. It's right. just a party for artists. But everyone knows what an artist is. Well, if you're there, you do. Yeah. Right? But and, if you're not, you don't. And just other, one other quick question. Sorry to pepper you with them. But uh, mm. at this point, I imagine we're not shipping uh, homosexuals to New Zealand. Uh, but I, I imagine it's illegal to, like, sodomy would be a crime and there would be, like, crackdowns on this kind of thing to some extent. So Yes. So it's yes. public, but also, like, public in such a way that it's not flaunted too much yeah and we have there's some interesting uh creative solutions people come up with to that problem right. as we progress so the 1924 artist ball theme was backed childhood which led to the sydney town hall being crammed full of grown men and women attired in everything from skimpy nappies to little girly frocks and sun bonnets 
And it was perhaps the most notorious of the artist's balls. And I quote here from someone who was there. It turned, if not into an orgy, then into a veritable bacchanalia. Oh, wow. This is cool. I never heard of these events at all. And yeah, it's great to hear about things in the 20s. Yeah, as you said, you hear quite a lot about Mardi Gras, but to... Yeah, hear about these rages at the town hall. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, and there was obviously also a lot of um, gratuitous drinking going on, which we have to remember was also illegal <laughs> after 6 p.m. Apparently at the 1922 ball, someone spiked the punch with whiskey and eventually the police got in on the fun, so much so that the 1925 ball was known as the policeman's ball <laughs> as they appeared to be stationed only paces apart throughout the town hall. Uh, classic. Yeah. So anyone who's been to a festival or a protest organised uh, in New South Wales recently will be able to relate to that. Eventually, the fun was spoiled by both the police presence and also the lack of alcohol. So they were wound down and the artist balls ended with the declaration of war. Uh, in 1939? Sure. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. This is the <laughs> Second World War, right? Yeah, that's the one. Okay. But then they, so they went for a while then because they were started in the early 20s and went all the way through the thir- yeah, 20s and 30s. Yeah, had a good okay. run. Yeah, yeah. No, fair play to them. Well done. Do we have any images from these or old flyers or any, or just these newspaper reviews? No, no photos. Uh, I have photos from when we get into the more contemporary no. period, but... Maybe it just adds romance to it. You've got to imagine. Yeah. So, like most wars... The war ended and gay parties thankfully returned to Sydney. And I can call them that now because with the war came American naval ships and the words gay and queer. Okay, yeah. Because they, yeah, they're American words, right? Originally. Yeah. And I like to think that they came off American naval ships that were docked at Garden Island, which was right next to the gayborhood. Yep. So in this period, it's still uh, six o'clock closing. So parties are still the focal point of gay nightlife. The way parties are happening in this period is through frantically organized kick-ons. So there are sort of the formations of some gay bars appearing, but obviously at six o'clock everything shuts and people would, you know, all grab together and find someone's house to go to. Right. Okay. So you have your, you have your six o'clock swill, but at a, essentially like kind of a gay friendly or a gay bar. And then you all kind of look around and go, where are we going to go next? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Cool. So, and the balls started up again in the 40s and they weren't, you know, as you said, they're not exclusively homosexual, but they were noticeably so. Um, And this is a description of a ball from the 40s that I think kind of gets that feeling. Inside the hall, the heat, the noise, the crush was fantastic. It was only midnight, but the ball was well away. Half the theatre and radio world seemed to be there. I counted at least eight Carmen Mirandas. Most of whom glared at one another. <laughs> These are great. You found some lovely yeah. quotes. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that particular party actually ended up in a very spectacular sounding all out brawl after it was raided by the police. Oh, with the police or between all of those commons? Between the police. Um, I, I didn't quote it because it was too long. But basically, they busted in while someone was doing a drag number. And then that person then proceeded to, like, taunt them from the stage until, like, one of the cops came up. And then she, like, smacked him with something and then the whole brawl erupted. So it was pretty full, oh, wow, on, yeah. full on brawl. And so this time period sort of represents a transition to a much more aggressive policing of homosexuality in Sydney. Okay, interesting. And the media gets in on it as well. 
prior to this, it was just like an unspoken thing. Wider society could, wouldn't have even believed it was occurring. Right. But in the 40s, it starts to become something that people are aware of and talked about. And that brings police and sort of media attention. And right. I mean, the, the, the Herald's famous because when the first Mardi Gras happened, they published a list of everyone that was arrested ostensibly to make sure that those people were sort of, you know, lost their jobs. or right, were, were publicly shamed. Yeah. And so in well into the 70s, the Herald had a reputation as being that kind of newspaper. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Because that's not standard procedure to list every single person who was arrested, right? No, no not really. <laughs> so what's interesting as well is in this period, the parties weren't just taking place in the inner city. Sydney being a city of suburbs by this point in time, mm-hmm. um, parties were happening all over the place. And so in 1949... The fine journalists at the aptly named Sydney Truth went undercover amongst the NICE, N-A-I-C-E, boys, uh, which was the term by which they had decided to refer to male homosexuals. Oh, okay. It's a good name. Uh, The the Truth, I think, was quite the kind of trashy tabloid, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Really splashy cover stories, like kind of, yeah, the, the Truth title being very loose. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you have to put it in your headline, in the <laughs> yeah, name of that's your that's always the first hint that there's something going wrong. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, apparently, the term "nice," nice used in that manner was uh, first used by H. G. Wells. Earliest use I could find. Okay. And it's a derogatory term for an overly refined or affected manner associated with the upper class. Okay, but then also associated with homosexuality. Yeah, because they're affectatious. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, flamboyant. Interesting. Okay. So this is from the 1949 Sydney Truth. Giggles and squeals pierced the night air as they tripped daintily along the platform of North Strathfield Railway Station. High-stepping little things in drag, women's clothing to the uninitiated, were tenderly escorted by their boy friends as they frolicked their way to the darkened street where their hostess for the night awaited them. Old world courtesy prevailed as the laddies helped the girlies onto the back of an open lorry to go to their latest do, one of those ducky little affairs which are now known as parties of the painted pansies. <laughs> yeah, give it to them. They got good names. <laughs> <laughs> and that I should say that that quote is full of inverted commas. <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, just everywhere. Just, just assume that. <laughs> Um, wow, this is this is really interesting to me. I mean, I, I came in very uh, oblivious and naive and not knowing much about this history. Um, but it's really, I didn't expect so much of this to go back so far in the 20th century and to be so kind of out in a lot of ways. Like, you know, walking down a train station in North Strathfield isn't like particularly hidden, you know? Mm, exactly right. Like the party culture is very obviously strong. It also does make you wonder like, we don't really have anything to go off before 1920, but you know what was the, what was going on before that point in time? I suppose right. I mean, I'm not sure there was just a great deal of partying going on in Sydney until probably the late <laughs> just, not, late 1800s. <laughs> Chains and hard labour. Yeah. yeah, there is. I, I have read a little bit about like research into homosexuality during the convict period, and you know, like to what extent that was prevalent, uh, especially in conditions where like there were overwhelmingly male um, mm. convict populations. Um, but that, yeah, you kind of jump from that to then like Mardi Gras and, and miss the hundred years in between. Well, you'd be pleased to know we're still in the intervening period. Yeah. So something important happened in 1954, Alistair. Do you know what? Uh, 
It wasn't the ending of the six o'clock swill, was it? No, that was it later. It absolutely right? was. Oh, yeah. Very good. So bars now stayed open until 10, which was a big deal. Gee, you're really testing me on your previous content. It's like an yeah. exam. <laughs> it is an exam. So there was a couple of long-running CBD hotel bars that were known as gay hangouts. And obviously with the extension of operating hours, they continued to function like that. But they're still beholden to the fact that homosexuality is illegal. Yeah. Um, and being known publicly as that made them particularly vulnerable to raids. Mm-hmm. So when I say hotel bars, we're talking like fancy hotel bars, not like the pub. So two <laughs> right. examples. Not like Hotel of- Century. No, exactly. So two examples were the long bar of the Australia Hotel and the dugout bar at the Carlton. Okay. So these are kind of nice swanky bars in upmarket hotels. Yes. So I'm actually going to have to digress and discuss these bars because in my research, I discovered that they would be of enormous interest to you. Yeah. Do tell me more. The Australia Hotel was on Castle Ray Street near Martin Place. Uh, yeah. Built in 1891. The foundation stone was actually laid by Henry Parks. Ooh. Wow. And the Australia was considered to be the best hotel in Australia and marketed itself as the hotel of the Commonwealth. Well, yeah, that's big claims. Big, big <laughs> Surely man. didn't leave up to it. <laughs> big man laying the stone. They really, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so if you can recall our walk around Martin Place last month. Yes. You remember that on the corner of uh, Castle Ray and Martin Place, there's this sort of mid-century futurist structure that we discussed. Oh, you mean like the mushroom looking thing? Yes, yes. the mushroom. So that's where the Australia Hotel stood and it was demolished in 1971 to make way for the 68-storey MLC Centre office tower. And next door to that was another beautiful old sandstone building, the Commercial Travellers Club. Uh, And that was also demolished and that's what's now housed within the mushroom. Oh. Right. What do you mean by now housed within the mushroom? The Commercial Travellers Club. They're right. in the mushroom. They're, right. They were they were on that site in a beautiful old sandstone <laughs> building. Now they're in the mushroom. Now they just get the mushroom. Yeah. Huh. Did they move this um, the bar to somewhere and it still exists by any chance? This lavish Australia bar? Mm, the Australia Hotel, the long bar? No. Yeah. No, okay, no they didn't. And uh, the same thing happened to the Carlton Rex Hotel, which had the dugout bar, which was another gay bar, which was across the street. That was also demolished to make way for an enormous concrete office tower. Hmm. More concrete. Obviously, there's some problems anyway with gay nightlife taking place in these extremely bougie hotel bars. Yeah, the clientele wouldn't have been that pleased, I imagine. They like, were the clientele. No, I guess these I mean bars the- have these hotels have multiple bars. So at the Carlton, right. there was two bars, and apparently it was literally like the straight bar and the gay bar. Right. I, I guess I was meaning like yeah, the, the upmarket businessman who's come in from the Commonwealth, wherever, to to the Commonwealth's finest hotel. And then it finds it's just raucous scenes. Well, I think you underestimate how many of these businessmen from across the Commonwealth uh, are interested in these raucous scenes. The other thing I would say is that these aren't just an anyone can go in bar. These places would have dress codes. They would have um, age restrictions. They would have class sort of restrictions and, right. and gender restrictions. So, you know, it was a very specific kind of person that could be in there anyway. Okay, yeah. So it's not like your businessman from London turns up with the wife and kids and is shocked and appalled. Well, the wife and kids wouldn't be allowed in the bar anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So he can safely go back to his room and she'll be none the wiser. (laughs) Just going to have a wee tipple. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And also interestingly, during this era, large gay parties were often held in public halls, which were booked under pseudonyms. 
with the venue only publicly announced on the day of the party, which, funnily enough, is a trend that continues to this say, day. Yeah, yeah, very contemporary. <laughs> yeah. Um, and some of the public halls that hosted gay bashes of the good kind um, <laughs> in the 50s and 60s included an RSL hall in Mortlake, a library hall in Glebe, a tennis court hall in Concord, and a public hall in Coogee. Yeah, wow. Okay, so really, like, dispersed all throughout, like, Greater Sydney. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And the police and journos often went after these events. Uh, and in one case, two journos were fed false information on the whereabouts of a gay party and rushed into a hall to find a Mother's League meeting in progress. <laughs> That's great. Did they, did they report on that? Did they? How do we know about this? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing that whoever set it up it was like, went I to watch. pulled a really good <laughs> <Yeah>. one. <laughs> Another classic aside from this era was the popularity of hiring the um, Blind Society Band, made up mostly of ex-servicemen, mm-hmm. to perform who were obviously none the wiser to the goings-on on the dance floor in front of them. Oh, wonderful. Just playing their music happily, completely oblivious. <laughs> yeah. um, and the artist ball actually was uh, started up again after World War II. So it's by this point in time, it's quite long running. Um, and it's usually taking place at the fabulous Art Deco Trocadero Ballroom which was uh, on George Street and was demolished in 1971 to make way for the George Street Cinema Complex. It's oh, a bit of a shame. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, as, as we've already discussed, awareness of the goings-on at these balls was beginning to attract unwanted attention. Right. Um, which isn't definitely isn't surprising given the ever-increasing flamboyance of some of the outfits. <laughs> it doesn't seem like they were particularly <laughs> underground, does it? <laughs> No, we have some stories here of drag queens arriving in removalist vans, which were the only vehicles large enough to contain their gowns and wigs. Um, a man whose costume included a live chook tied to a nest on his head. And my personal favourite, a man in drag as a tram conductress who collected fares as they made their way up George Street. <laughs> it does sound like the kind of thing you see today. <laughs> Um, but at all, sadly, all that splendid flamboyance drew the attention of not only the police, who were already, as we discussed, sort of aware of this, but larrikins intent on a brawl. Yeah. yeah. Which led to the demise of the artist balls. Right. Okay. Just because if you've got enough people coming to brawl, uh, the ball's not fun any longer. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So as we enter the 60s, Sydney starts to change quite a lot. A lot of migration and a more outward-looking culture. And um, Robin Boyd uh, noted in 1960 that Sydney was at the forefront of this change. He said that compared to other state capitals, Sydney had the tallest buildings, the brightest lights, the best and closest beaches with the burliest lifesavers, the fiercest colours in the fastest taxis with the toughest drivers, the patchiest parks and the busiest traffic. There you go. I feel like Sydney siders probably like to think of themselves more or less that way still. (laughs) Um, And obviously by 1970, the sprawling suburbs of Sydney were well and truly dominant. And our inner city high streets were starting to decline in favour of drive-in shopping malls. Um, And commentators as early as 1970 were lamenting the loss of the real King's Cross as a hub of Bohemia as high rents drove out the artistic classes. There you go. They 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 hadn't seen anything yet. And then, as discussed in 1978, Sydney held its first Mardi Gras, uh, which has come to be known as the most iconic gay party in Sydney. And in 1982 was when Mardi Gras sort of first became 
um, as much about the party as the protest. Right, because the first one, the 78 one, was was a protest, right? Like kind of a protest march. Yeah, it was, it was. Um, it's not kind of not kind of what we think of now today as Mardi Gras, which is a very kind of like open party in a way. Yeah, well, I mean, I Mardi Gras is kind of a march and a party. So yeah. the march has been going on in one form or another. And you're right in saying that what the uh, 1978 protest and people walking around in circles in the Sydney cricket ground in 2020 have in common is very limited, but they are both a form of march. Yeah. And then since 1982, every year there's been an after party um, associated with that, which has been held, I think, more or less continuously at Horden Pavilion and Royal Hall of Industries at um, Fox mm-hmm. Studios there in Moore Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. I mean, yeah, actually, I should, I, that was misleading and ignorant of me in a way to say it's like not a protest anymore because it is still a march that and i i was reading a little bit about the kind of division of that uh thing in the scg where it was like that there's people who feel uncomfortable that it's been overly commercialized and that any kind of protest nature of mardi gras has kind of been whittled away over time as it becomes a more mainstream event yeah exactly there's not just one way that mardi gras is or what it represents yeah, and definitely uh, diverse opinions on um, what that might look like or what it should be, I suppose, is yeah. a very contentious thing. So into the 80s, we have not only the official Mardi Gras party, but we have a burgeoning Sydney party scene in the style of these earlier balls. So uh, the 10-year anniversary party of Mardi Gras in 1988 went down in history as a particularly impressive number. Mm-hmm. This was held as the Mardi Gras party still is today at Moore Park's Royal Hall of Industries. And at this party, sometime after midnight, the lights in the cavernous hall dropped. The opening bar of Diana Ross's chain reaction started to blare out and not one, but five Diana Rosses appeared on stage. <laughs> the crowd went wild and then suddenly a spotlight lit the other end of the hall where on a similar More stage, Diana Ross. another five <laughs> Diana Rosses attired in the same iconic red gown, appeared. And then, in perfectly choreographed harmony, the ten of them lip-synced their way through the dance floor anthem. Wonderful. And the crowd were blown away figuratively. And then, <laughs> at 4.30am, literally, when to the sounds of jazz favourite stormy weather, two huge wind machines and kilos and kilos of paper snow transformed RHI into a blizzard. Wow. Sounds like a great party. Mm. So the 80s weren't just about Mardi Gras parties, though. There was a new crew in town named RAT, which was named for the rodent, but backronymed to Recreational Arts Team. And they started throwing their own avant-garde extravaganzas. These parties were started by a man called Jack Vigeon, who was throwing increasingly elaborate and expensive house parties and uh, subsequently went looking for a larger space in which to have them. His first party was held for about 200 guests in Surrey Hills in 83, and then in uh, at Bondi Pavilion in 84. And then in 85, his parties were at a theatre in Balmain, Paddington Town Hall, a club in Surrey Hills, the UNSW Roundhouse, and Luna Park. Oh, nice. So it sort of blew up quite quickly. Um, and they quickly became like a big institution in Sydney. Right. So all in all, the Rat Crew threw 41 parties in the style of... Um, the Mardi Gras party I just described, and the Artist Balls between 1983 and 1992. And they rose to the dizzying heights of the New Year's Eve 1988 party, which was also at Horden Pavilion, which was live broadcast around the country on Triple J 
and featured a 4am performance by Grace Jones. Wow. Yeah, interesting. So there's such a kind of continuity to these extravagant parties throughout the 20th century history of Sydney. Yeah, there's these sort of moments where there's gaps, but they come and flare up again. And the the late 80s is definitely the moment for them. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that's a fairly major event if it's being live broadcast on Triple J. Yeah, legend has it that Grace Jones was actually scheduled to be on at midnight, but she wouldn't go on stage until she got a call from her bank in the US confirming that her booking (laughs) fee had gone in. Um, And I read one interesting account from an attendee saying that the whole crowd had dropped their drugs ready to kick in for her set at midnight and were instead stuck milling around for four more hours. Uh, I can only imagine. (laughs) So things ended for the Rat Crew in the early 90s um, when they went on to do different things. And funnily enough, the creator of it, Jack Vigian, um, he became a a Buteyko, Buteyko, breathing instructor. Okay, I don't know anything about that. And moved to Asia and was the sort of go-to Buteyko specialist in Asia until he passed away uh, three years ago. So it's in a strange turn of events for a man who's most famous in Sydney for launching this iconic sort of dance party series his online presence is mostly to do with breathing exercises he <laughs> <Breathing> <laughs> really changed tack there yeah but the rap parties weren't just about a good time though they also signify the entry of gay nightlife into the mainstream um as the triple j thing is referenced to yeah and so you end up with these parties being less just about the queer community and more about a sort of broader heterosexual bohemian crowd as well as the queer community Mm -hmm. Um, and their success spawned countless other large-scale all-night dance parties so there was sweatbox bacchanalia um, and mardi gras started doing a sleazeball which was on you know at a different time of year so there's two mardi gras parties a year plus all these other ones yeah Um, all of these featured thousands of people and they were happening literally every weekend through the late 80s wow so really the 80s was the time to be in sydney well, yes and no. Uh, we'll get to that. Um, so by the 1990s, City of Sydney started cracking down on the uh, obvious excess of some of these parties. Mm. Those bloody noise complaints. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I kind of got the impression <laughs> that at this the point, <laughs> everything's kind of like, it's everything's going well and it's all kind of people have just, it's allowed. I imagine it's no longer illegal to be homosexual at this point or publicly homosexual. Yeah, it's it's in the 80s that that changed okay. in New South Wales. So sometime in the midst here, yeah. But by the time that the they started having trouble getting bookings at Horden, there was a lot of other promoters doing similar things in venues like Alexandria Basketball Stadium. Okay. Um, and, of course, those famed secret inner west warehouse locations. <laughs> yeah. And, it, yeah, if there's one thing that can shut anything down, it's noise complaints. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, Sydney was a world-famous party destination, if only for a brief, glimmering moment. Yeah, cool. I didn't actually know that at all. You'd be un- probably unsurprised to hear. Not surprised. Yeah, it was It was really like a place-to-party kind of thing in the way that maybe like people our age like, like to go to Berlin to like party now. Yes, yeah, yeah. And there's this amazing body of work by photographer William Yang that captures the era incredibly. He pretty much just went to all these parties and took photos. And I guess, you know, as we're saying, oh, there's only, you know, there's almost no sources on what was going on in the 19th century. And then we've got these sort of written accounts that were done through sort of the collection of oral history for the first half of the 20th century. Well, this period is is catalogued through not only those accounts, but also this 
one guy's amazing archive of pho- photography. Oh, cool. And he's, he's, he's still around and his work's obviously still around. Um, and actually, as we record this, he's showing at the Queensland Art Gallery. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Showing off the gay state to other states. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and as you sort of said about, you know, the 80s being the time to be in Sydney, the obvious unspoken undercurrent to all the debauchery that I've talked about is the AIDS epidemic. Uh-huh. The worst years of which sort of exactly span the years that those rat parties ran. Right. Yeah. And I don't feel the need to go into this too much, but... Uh, there's a sort of a, a well-documented correlation and connection between the drug-fueled hedonism of that period and the incredible suffering that was going yeah. on in the in the community, especially for gay men at the period of time. Yeah, there's the man. This is a real roller coaster ride through the. <laughs> That's how we do it. Um, and the other thing, interestingly, that was going on that was uh, pretty unpleasant, very unpleasant in the eighty in late eighties in Sydney was the frequency of gay bashings and gay murders. Mm-hmm. And they were, I mean, depending on your view, they're attended to by either a disinterested or conspiratorial police force. Mm-hmm. But convictions were almost never made. Um, and in the last couple of years, there's actually been this renewed sort of mainstream interest in revisiting some of these old cold cases. Mm-hmm. SBS ran a series focusing on each sort of person that they believe to, the, the journalist doing the work believes to have been a gay hate murder, which was they found 30 in that period, none of which were considered to be murders at the time. They were all just marked as suicides or um, whatever. But a lot of that came about because of, um, uh, the guy's name escapes me now, um, but a, an American man that was murdered in Sydney in the late 80s, his, and it was ruled a suicide, his brother, you know, spent the intervening 30 years investigating it and, um, and basically waiting until there was a more receptive police force in Sydney to hear what he was saying, uh-huh. which, you know, took until the yeah, last wow. sort of five years. Wow. Um, because you know what those sort of organizations can be like, even if they've sort of toned down the rhetoric of being outwardly anti-homosexual, 25 years is still well within individuals' careers. So no one's going to want to go, oh, yeah, we, you know, we <laughs> were sweeping that stuff under the rug. Yeah, completely got rid of that <laughs> case report. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's, there's a lot of... Um, there was a lot to be upset about, and I guess, um, I guess, partying that hard was uh, one way of coping with that. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is always kind of interesting to think of like that, like that element of excess and extravagance is often kind of the flip side to other experiences. The heterosexual man like me, who's just trying to get by, <laughs> nothing, nothing particularly exciting or wild happens. But also, I'm not. Accosted on the street. <laughs> yeah. Well, me either. <laughs> yeah, luckily. Rarely. <laughs> Occasionally, but rarely. Sometimes you have um, to rein it in to a... <laughs> <laughs> the, odd, the odd snide comment in Darwin casinos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> on misadventure no. on the streets of Orange. Yeah, the occasional one. Uh, these days, the Sydney gay party scene is obviously a, a shell of its former self. In terms of these extravaganzas, which we've, which I guess is what this episode is really about, <laughs> yeah, um, it's really only the annual Mardi Gras parade after party, in which you know some ten thousand, almost exclusively shirtless gay men, take over Horden and RHI, which you know feels like a really nice throwback to the the glory days. Yeah, I didn't realize that's interesting that those that specific venue slash venues um, 
have have that history as well. Mm. Because I think, of, I mean, I just think of them as concert venues, you know, because they also are fairly generic concert yeah. venues, but they, yeah, they have a kind of long history or fairly long history with uh, the gay community. Yeah. Um, and the other outfit is called Heaps Gay. To my mind, they're probably the largest independent outfit organizing big parties outside of clubs. The last few years, they've done Mardi Gras after parties over three levels at Manning Bar at UCID. Mm. And I once went to a heapscape party at the top of Centerpoint Tower, which was a good time. And obviously the aforementioned Queen's birthday, long weekend Queen's Ball in Sydney Town Hall is organized by them as well. Okay. Sorry. How often did you say that was? Queen's birthday, long weekend. Uh, so every year? Yeah. 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 No, <laughs> well, I, not I, this year. Right. Obviously. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I was just zoned out for a second. So many parties, you know, I was... There's a lot of parties. Getting exhausted at this point. <laughs> you must be tired. Just thinking about all this partying. <laughs> Where's a man down? So that's, that brings us to now. I've got some credits for this story that I wanted to mention because I, I put a fair bit of... I did a lot of reading for this. Yeah. And I've really... It's been really interesting and a good time for me as well. But most of, most of what's in this story came from a book called Gay Sydney, A History by Gary Wotherspoon. He's an academic and he's been writing about this stuff for quite a long time. So he wrote a precursor to that book in the early 90s, I think. Um, And I think he did quite a few of those interviews with the old timers at that point in time. Which is where some of our knowledge from the pre-World War II era comes from. Yeah, that's great that that's documented. Yeah. Oh, amazing. In terms of other podcasts to listen to, like I said, I didn't really go into the history of Mardi Gras. There's heaps of information around about that if you want to know more i will again mention the pride in protest july 2020 episode of their podcast called a history of queer liberation and leftism feet ken davis yeah that episode of the podcast is the one you mentioned earlier alistair yeah, I listened uh, which to is that. A, yeah an interview between my friend charlie and ken who was at the first mardi gras God, Ken is quite the man. He lost me the first 15 minutes. My my jaw was on the ground trying to follow all of the political machinations. (laughs) Yeah, Macquarie University's various communist societies in the 1970s. Yeah, so that's a good time. But then, uh, yeah, once it gets going, once you kind of, once you start to understand what he's talking about, and you've you've got a good handle on the university political scene, then it, uh, yeah, really good episode. I particularly enjoyed his analysis that the sort of cultural zeitgeist is uh, defined by the type of drugs that are abundantly available at that point in time. <laughs> yeah. The other podcast episode I have that is very, very good and interesting, uh, which I decided not to feature in this episode, partly uh, in the interests of keeping this relatively PG and partly because... Radio National did such a good job with their podcast. There was really nothing to add. But if you want to hear a um, one particular story from the era of Sydney's rat parties, I strongly suggest you listen to ABC Radio National's Earshot May 2017 podcast episode called Searching for Trough Man. Hmm. Um, and it features interviews with Gary Wotherspoon, who wrote the book on gay Sydney, and also the late Jack Vigeon, who was the famed hoster of Sydney's rat parties. Flash breathing expert. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and I mentioned the William Yang exhibition that's on at the Queensland Art Gallery into August. And interestingly, also the Powerhouse Museum had a rat collection, has a rat collection that they exhibited in 2009. So yeah. hopefully that comes back around. 
Yeah, there you go. I'd never heard of it, but it seems like it's actually quite a yeah a prominent part of Sydney's history. Mm. And they had uh, the rap parties had some pretty groovy looking um, flyers, like promo flyers that were around. Nice. So I'll probably throw a couple of them on on the social media. Um, but cool. yeah, that brings me to the end of our episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, I really did. I really liked that it had a nice theme going through it. Like you really went, and it's a very Jed theme for like the extravagant parties. <laughs> <laughs> Just tracking them through, which is great because there's so much, as you said, there's just so many different topics that you could be covering. But it was it was really fun to just follow through the decades, the kind of continuity of gay history in Sydney and of like really wild, amazing parties. Um, I really like that. And it does make me actually I have a kind of a newer, a, a, a different view on um, gay Sydney. And like it's it's nice to know that there's like such a a long heritage to it. Yeah. I mean, that sort of legacy is important to me um, personally, but also I think that I wanted to do something positive because so often the sort of historical gay experience, recent historical gay experience is framed in a negative way Mm -hmm. um, because there is a lot of stuff that is negative, but there's also a lot that's really positive. And I actually came to this topic, my first exposure to it, I think, as as an idea or something I was interested in was quite a long time ago, back in 2012, I was couch surfing at this nudist's house near Cairns and he had a William Yang book, mm-hmm. like a photo album or whatever you want to call a published photo book. And just looking through these photos, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. You know, I was 21 at the time and I think it's so easy at that age to think that nothing that fabulous happened much before you came along right, like right maybe in 2005 you know or maybe in maybe 2000 but not in 18, 1983 yeah let alone 1922 you know what i mean absolutely absolutely i think i was gonna actually i have a few questions at the end but i was gonna ask about like comment on that and ask about it because so much i feel like the the narrative that we tend to consume is that like it was all just like you know slimy toy public toilets and you know like cop beatings and people just like having a really awful time of it and then in the last kind of 20 or 30 years things have kind of got a bit better and now we're a bit we're all a bit more woke but like you know it's just a really tough history and you know people having like horrific chemical treatments and stuff uh Mm. at the yeah government's orders whereas this is yeah this is a really different history of 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 another side of things not to say that those things weren't happening as well but you know it's a it's great to see that history of celebration and yeah and i think one really nice thing about the gay community it's obviously got uh, you know there's loads of classism and and racism and all the rest of anything that exists in any other part of society but i think that these things have mattered less through history because people came together around one specific thing and you know you mentioned beats um, like public toilet beats or cruising places, you know, you can have your own sort of opinions about these spaces, but they're um, they're like an egalitarian space in a way, right? And they're a place where people from any part of society can sort of meet and connect with one another. And so I think one thing the gay community has always been quite good at is crossing over what in other parts of society might be quite uncrossable boundaries. Mm-hmm. But obviously, it's not always, you know, not always the way it goes. As we had Sydney's major gay bars being in um, super snobby, bougie uh, CBD right. hotels, which would have kind of 
uh, filtered out a, a lot of gay people who just couldn't afford to dress or or afford drinks in such a establishment, right? Yeah, yeah. It's only a exactly right. Yeah, very interesting. That's cool because I yeah I, I wanted to bring it back around because. Uh, the only other time I think that uh, Gay Sydney has come specifically into our podcast was when we were talking about the uh, Darlinghurst Jail and that uh, one of the, the historic sandstone walls, at least one one side of those were a yeah. kind of cruising area historically, I think you were telling me. Yeah, yeah. The wall, um, the wall is yeah just behind the Darlinghurst Jail and was famous until, oh, gee, I want to say like the 90s potentially. Um, mm-hmm. as a, as like a specifically as a prostitute pickup spot, like rent boy pickup spot. Okay. So not a general cruising area so much as one specifically for that purpose. Okay. Yeah. And then I, so the other thing I wanted to ask is you were talking about the, even from the late twenties, um, that the area around kind of Surrey Hills, Woolloomooloo, Darlinghurst, um, was was the kind of area where there were a lot of there was a large gay community or where the gay community was, uh, and I guess I, being a naive person in the twenty well, first century in Sydney, think of that kind of strip of Oxford Street near Taylor Square. Like if I was to say where the famously gay part of Sydney is, that would probably be the place that I'd identify. Has that kind of that area always been like that? Um, yeah, what's so- the history of that particular area? Obviously, the when it was when the gay world centered around people's houses, it was spread out through you know the broader East Sydney. So yeah, Surrey Hills, Darlinghurst, Woolloomooloo, Potts Point, Elizabeth Bay, Paddington, this area. Mm-hmm. When we saw um, the opening of specifically and outwardly gay venues, which was in the sixties, so you ended up with restaurants or bars or bathhouses. They opened in. Uh, yeah, along Oxford Street, but but the whole way along Oxford Street, they were everywhere from um, Hyde Park to Bondi Junction mm-hmm. um, and also King's Cross. So when the first Mardi Gras happened in 1978, they went, they, they went from Taylor Square down Oxford Street, then went to King's Cross to end there because that was sort of the main gay area. Right. Um, or I suppose at that point in time, it was sort of shifting across to Oxford Street. So, was, yeah, maybe in the late... 70s or 80s or early 80s was when the section of Oxford Street between Hyde Park and Taylor Square became sort of known as the gay strip and it was called the Golden Mile Mm -hmm. because it was just wall-to-wall gay targeted businesses. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Okay, because, yeah, and I guess in my lifetime experience, not that I went to King's Cross that often, but that was more probably more of a straight area i would imagine it was i never seemed particularly exciting to me but there were it was less obvious to me that it was a gay area yeah yeah well yeah i think it's statistical area two sa2 but in the um bureau of statistics sort of analysis at a smaller than suburb but you know maybe a say a locality sized area Mm -hmm. those parts of sydney are like 30% 30% gay men or something ridiculous right. like that. Yeah, like okay. it's the proportion through East Sydney and Darlinghurst is just through the roof. Huge. Right. Right. And it's just more, yeah, I guess more for like when you're walking down the street and looking the, at the businesses, it's that golden mile area that really sticks out to you. Well, in the era of internet induced decentralization, though the role of the street is increasingly sort of called into question, I suppose. Yeah. 
the gay news agent that was had been around since the at least the sixties and was twenty four hours closed a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. The number of like gay venues on the street is less than it used to be. I think like that element, that idea of the street having a ex- like explicitly gay character is much less so now than it ever has been, mm-hmm. and that's just been a steady. It's probably it's probably like the whole thing about the Bohemians leaving King's Cross in the seventies. Right. Sure, people were saying, "Oh, the Golden Mile's decaying in 1991." Right. You know, but there's no doubt about it that the internet has played an enormous role in in reducing the need for people to have physical places to meet. That applies to any community, but yeah. the gay community in particular is affected by that. In and it's it's a good and bad thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I think as you were saying uh, with regards to, to to the famous, the wall, you're like, well, you know, now, now there's uh, apps and stuff. So you don't quite need that, need a location for certain interactions. You can just hook up online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, it, uh, one, uh, one reasonable argument would be that having gay spaces that are almost exclusively dominated by drugs and alcohol isn't creating an environment that everyone feels welcoming or that is a particularly safe environment for new people. Right. So, you know, it's good that there's a diversity of options, but I think it's also sad that, um, you know, a city with a enormous legacy of amazing queer parties is sort of left with one big annual event. Yeah. And a sort of smattering of other smaller things. But you'd think with the volume of people we're talking about here, you know, it's a it's the gayest it's the gayest city in the gayest state uh, that there'd be <laughs> that there'd be able to be a, a demand for more than that. Yeah. You know, it's obviously a really hard thing to organize in a in a city like Sydney where it's not easy to throw a party in Sydney. No, no. And I mean, you know, who knows if the stuff at Horden would still go ahead if the city of Sydney wasn't so pro that sort of events that celebrate gay self expression, I suppose. Yeah. So thanks, Clover. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, wow. Well, thank you for that tour de force, Jed. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Now, I believe you've uh, got a clue for me for your uh, episode next fortnight. <laughs> I do. Uh, I hadn't really thought of that in the context of this episode. It now seems like quite the drab clue. <laughs> <laughs> After all this extravagance, not quite sure how to work up excitement into my clue. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. (laughs) Uh, Jed, you know when you're walking quite close to the area that we were just talking about near Hyde Park, but at this point I want you to imagine that you're in Hyde Park at the kind of intersection of Elizabeth Street and uh, Bathurst Street. Mm -hmm. And I believe you'll know there's one fairly large thing there that you couldn't help but Certainly do. It's an enormous Egyptian obelisk. Indeed. Now... You might know what this obelisk is actually hiding. I certainly do. But for a long time, I had no idea why this obelisk was there. It sticks out like a sore thumb. It looks as if it's pretending that it's been kind of shipped over from Egypt in some kind of plunderous raid. (laughs) And uh, there's... As far as I know, I w- no clear explanation upon the obelisk, but maybe there is if you look closely. Hmm, I'm not sure if it says what it is. I do know what it is, but I will keep that secret so well, that it's not spoiled for our listeners. 
This obelisk is uh, one of uh, many large monuments throughout Sydney that disguise or perhaps don't disguise a network that is very important to the functioning of the city. Mm, I'm so glad you're doing this topic and I can't believe you think it's a drab. (laughs) Well, it's certainly not, but uh, I don't know, just thinking of a stone pillar after all of these exciting parties just seemed a bit underwhelming. (laughs) Well, it's, it's actually very funny you say that because the gays have, have had something to do with that in the past as well. I think it was about 2018 ACON, which is the um, sort of a uh, mostly queer ad- health advocacy group, it stands for AIDS Council of New South Wales, put a giant pink condom over the obelisk to oh, celebrate wow. Mardi Gras. Um, and the wowsers, you know, they're still poking around, complained and uh, had it removed. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which wow, is pretty so- funny, especially since they were literally removing the condom. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's probably the Catholics. Yeah, wow, that's very interesting. I had never heard of this event happening. There you go. If you already know what that's about, then you'll know what uh, next uh, Fortnite's episode is about. Otherwise, you'll just have to hang in there and you'll find out what that obelisk is really doing. I'm very excited. And I also want to say that I, too, all through high school, I walked past that obelisk on the way to school. And I, you know, in, in the sort of classic ignorance of a kid just assumed it was a genuine treasure from Egypt. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> uh, like, oh yeah. That's, uh, I kind of, I always thought it was, you know, like a B-list treasure. You know, they, they wouldn't give us one of the best treasures, but I thought it was a, a nice ancient artifact at the very least. Well, if the British Museum ended up with as many as they did, surely Bathurstry can have one. <laughs> yeah, just, just a medium-sized one. All right. Well, thanks very much for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, as much as we enjoyed making it. Um, I do want to let you know that if you want to get in touch with any questions, comments or complaints, you can contact us at storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. We also post extra content and try and stay in touch with our listeners uh, with varying degrees of success on our social media channels. So check us out on Instagram at Stories from Sydney and on Facebook, Stories from Sydney. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would like to leave a review on whichever podcast platform you listen to this podcast on. And also be sure to subscribe so that you can get the next episode automatically coming into your inbox. If you didn't like this episode, we'd prefer you not to write a review because that would be bad for us. And instead, send the aforementioned email. Yep. Uh, Well, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time for uh, Alistair's special story from Sydney. See you then. (laughs) 